Thank you, Matt. I'm grateful for Matt in a number of areas. Uh, one place, well, a few places, maybe not so much. Uh, one of them, though, is he keeps ruining my uh, relationship with my sons. A few months back, he was illustrating something in a sermon. I don't even remember what the sermon was about, but I remember the illustration because he's talking about Noah and his BB gun. And what you have to understand is I have two daughters, two sons. Girls are 16 and 14. Boys are 12 and 10. Well, Noah is, how old are you, Noah? Eight. So Matt's talking about Noah getting to shoot his BB gun. And after church, what's the first thing that my 10-year-old and 12-year-old are going to say? Noah gets to shoot a BB gun? How old is Noah? Well, this morning I hear about Noah's uh, adventures driving the go-kart on vacation. And so um, this is going to be another problem for me. Uh, but no, it's a joy to participate in the summer series in the Psalms. And if you turn your Bible to Psalm 36... I will read it, and then we will pray and ask the Lord uh, to bless the ministry of his word. It's on page 590 of the Pew Bible, and uh, the word of the day, kids, if you're following it, is one which you can make a lot of money. You can get all the money that Pastor Matt didn't spend on vacation. You can get the rest of it from him today. The word is love. So uh, keep track of that if you're looking to profit monetarily from the ministry of the Word of God. (laughs) But Psalm 36, this is God's inspired, authoritative, and inerrant word. To the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There. The evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. We bless your name, O Lord God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
for you are light and in you there is no darkness at all. You are light and with you there is no shadow due to change. But we confess our God and Father that we so often fail to perceive you in our circumstances, in our trials. We so often face fail to look beyond the surface of things. And so we ask today that by your spirit and through your word, you would open our eyes that we may perceive, that we may rejoice in, that we may appropriately respond to your steadfast love as you have manifested to us in Christ in so many wonderful ways. And we ask it that we might be changed and that our lives might be consecrated to the praise and glory and honor and thanks of your great name and to the good of our neighbor. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. John Calvin called the Psalms an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. And what he meant by that was that you know, whatever mood you find yourself in, whatever emotional state you find yourself in, the Psalms speak to that. They speak to joy. They speak to sorrow. They speak to our fears. And they speak to us in times of confidence. And there's a sense in which the whole Psalter has a word for the whole gamut of human experience, the, the full scope of human emotion. Martin Luther, uh, striking a very similar note, said that the Psalter, the Psalms, the book of Psalms, is a little Bible. And by that he meant everything that the whole Bible teaches us about God as our creator, as our providential ruler, as the one who cares for us, as our redeemer, as the ruler of the church, and as our ultimate reward. Everything the Bible says about God and all that God is for us, it's also there in the Psalter. It's an anatomy of all the parts of the human soul. It's a little Bible. I, I like to think of the Psalms as a GPS. They have a special way of connecting to us wherever we are, in whatever circumstance we are, in whatever emotional state we find ourselves in, and then they do what a GPS does. They direct us to where we need to go. And of course, in all the circumstances of life, we need to be directed to God. I teach a course called Systematic Theology at the seminary, and one of the things we do in Systematic Theology as we study the different doctrines of the Bible what makes it systematic is that we want to see how all the different doctrines of the Bible ultimately relate to God. All things are ultimately from him and through him and to him. Well, that tracing of all things to God is not just something we should do in the seminary classroom. It's something we need in everyday life. In all the circumstances we find ourselves in, how can we learn to view these circumstances? How can we allow ourselves in these circumstances to be directed to God, the one from whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. And this is what the Psalms help us do. They are a spiritual 
GPS. They're not there to distract us from the realities of this world, but they're there to reorient our perspective by reorienting it to God, to give us new eyes, to give us new affections, to give us a new way of living in the world. Well, this psalm addresses a very palpable emotion, a very common experience that we find ourselves in in our daily lives. It addresses the challenge of fear. And in this case, not a fear that kind of arises from within us or some, from some inadequacy that's within us, but it's a fear regarding the enemy. It's a fear regarding the wicked, as the psalmist describes him. And it's not just any kind of fear of the wicked, but it's a fear of a certain kind of wicked person. It's a fear of the wicked person who has made it their aim in life, as it were, to destroy the people of God. In this case, to destroy David, the psalmist. Uh, look how he describes the, the, the total and devoted concentration of the wicked to, to his destruction. He, he uses a, a, a poetic imagery of the first three verses of the Psalter that we, we call a merism. We, we do this all the time. We talk about uh, lock, stock, and barrel. You refer to the different parts of something to refer to the whole thing. Well, he, he speaks of the various parts of the anatomy of the wicked person. He talks about his heart, his eyes, his ears. In verse 11, he talks his foot and his hand. And the point is, in each instance, it's as if every part of the wicked, every part of his body is devoted to the destruction of the psalmist. That's why he says, don't let his foot come upon me. Don't let his hand come upon me. Okay? He's plotting in his heart against me. His, his eyes, before his eyes, he has no fear of God. He has no worry about consequences of what God might do if he, if he carries out his plans. He, he also uses the, the imagery of, 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 of the wicked person lying down in his bed, walking on a path. And the idea is whether he's waking or sleeping, he's plotting my destruction. And of course, this is something you can't live very long without coming across, Right? You see it in the workplace. Someone who, for whatever reason, they've got your number, right? You can see it with the kids. It's a crazy world we live in. Get involved in youth sports. Get involved in the arts for 10 seconds, right? There are crazy parents out there. They want to wreck your kid's career. We see it in politics, right? On the right hand and on the left hand, there would be those who if they had their way, they'd either want to deport the people of God back to their home to certain death, or they want to make it illegal so you couldn't exercise your faith freely. And so we know what it is to have fear, real fears, in some ways legitimate fears, about the wicked. But as a spiritual GPS, this psalm comes to us in this state, comes to us aware of the very real emotion that we, we, we have. Because there are those out there who would destroy us if they could. If they got their way, if their plans came to pass, we wouldn't be here any longer. And it finds us where we are, and it directs us to God. Specifically, it directs us to the steadfast love 
of God. And that's the theme of this psalm. He talks about the steadfast love of the Lord in verse 5. Talks about the steadfast love of the Lord in verse 7. Talks about it again in verse 10. And so all three stanzas, after he's reflected upon the fear of the wicked, come back to this theme of the steadfast love of the Lord. You know, we often think of the human heart as, as a chair, as it were, and, 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 and what we're trying to do in kind of gauging our emotional life is get the wrong emotion out of the chair, put the right emotion in the chair. But I think that the truer picture is that the human heart is like a scale. Okay? And, and there are various challenges and circumstances and threats that, that would weigh the heart, that would cause us to fear, that would cause us to lose our joy. And what scripture does so many times is not to try to act like those realities don't exist. Okay? That, that's not realism. Okay? Scripture doesn't try to teach us to kind of escape this world. But what it does is on the other side of the scale, it adds something heavier, something more precious, something more weighty that can tip the balance in our hearts. And this is exactly what we see in Psalm 36. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. How valuable, how wonderful. The language here of something precious is as of a treasure. The steadfast love of the Lord is, as it were, a multifaceted diamond. And what the psalmist wants to do is to hold that diamond up before us and to turn it before us and let the various rays of light shine through it and be refracted so we may see the full weight and glory of the steadfast love of the Lord. And the psalmist gives us a new perspective on the wicked, on our fear. Not by denying it, not by trying to to brush it out of the way or distract us, but by placing on the scale of our hearts an exceeding weight of glory that far outweighs the fear of the wicked. Well, let's look for just a few minutes this morning at Psalm 36. And I want to draw very briefly uh, four facets of the steadfast love of the Lord that the psalmist wishes us to meditate upon, that he wants to, to place on the scale of our heart, that he wants to use to, to outweigh the fear of the wicked that might consume us. The first uh, facet, if you will, is related to God's love for us in Christ as an infinite love. God's love for us in Christ is an infinite love. Love. Look at verse 5 and 6. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. Uh, the Psalms, all of Scripture, but the Psalms especially, are, are rich in imagery. And the Psalms use things that we're very familiar with in the world to, to make a theological point. We know the, 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 the height of the heavens. We, we know the, the height of the clouds. We who have left the state of Florida know about mountains. <laughs> a few years ago, I think it, I was trying to figure out this morning how long ago it was. I think it was eight years ago. Uh, we were out in Fort Collins, Colorado, where a lot of our members are uh, this summer. And uh, we were out there for the crew uh, summer training. 
And several of the days, the whole family went. We had the, the privilege of going up to Rocky Mountain National Park. You know, this is one of the highest points in the USA. We went to the Continental Divide. And, and I remember driving up the mountain. And it seemed like the higher you got, the narrower the roads got, and the fewer guardrails there were, which doesn't make any sense, right? You think the higher you get, wide roads, more guardrails. But I remember driving, you know, and you're looping and you're curving and, and, and you're getting higher and higher. And you get to the point where you're almost at the top and the roads are so narrow and there's no guardrail. And you look over the side and it's just, you know, certain death if you do anything wrong. Okay? The mighty mountains. The weighty mountains. Well, this is what the psalmist says. God's love is an infinite, immeasurable love. High as the heavens. High as the clouds. Like the mighty mountains in its greatness, like the depths of the sea in its depth. This, of course, is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3 when he's meditating on God's love for us in Christ. You remember how he describes it? He talks about the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of God's love. And then what does he say? That love is past knowing. It's infinite and unfathomable in its dimensions. And, 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 and note the language there. Breadth, length, height, and depth. It's, it's dimensions. Right? You go up. You go down. You go to the left. You go to the right. God's love expands in all directions. It's a multidimensional, infinite love. I um, am the kind of person, when I get technology... I kind of use it at the minimum level, right? So my skills on Word are I can open document, type on it, and save it, okay? My skills on my iPhone is I can check my email, I can send texts, I can make phone calls. Uh, but one of our children, from the time she was probably six, year, six months old, she was like the opposite. Like, she had the, the inquisitive mind that she wants to figure everything out about everything. I remember... Before she could crawl, she was reaching for the VCR one day. I think she was going to take it apart, figure out the different parts. And so, you know, now anytime anyone has a question on the, around the house about, hey, the, how do we do this on the phone? Or how do you do this on the computer? Ask Sophie. Okay? Well, so many times when we consider the love of God, you're like me with technology. We just pay attention to one facet of it. God's love is a forgiving love. Okay? That's a great and foundational aspect of God's love. But that's not how scripture speaks of God's love. There's not just one dimension to it. It's infinite. There's a height to it. Before the foundation of the world, God loved us. Okay? There, there's a breadth to it. He, he, for Christ's sakes, forgives us for all of our sins in Christ. He doesn't love us because of anything good in us, but solely for his own mercy's sake. There, there's a width to it. There's a sanctifying love where we're having forgiven our sins. He's conforming us to the image of his son because he loves us too much to leave us the way we are. And he even comes to delight in the work of his hands in us. And then, of course, there's a depth of God's love. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, he made himself poor. Our God, Jesus Christ, the son of God, stooped all the way down to become one of us. To bear the burden of our misery. 
to redeem us through his precious blood that we might belong to him. And so God's love for us in Christ is an infinite love. Note also God's love for us in Christ is a protecting and providing love. Verse 7, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. God's love is a protecting love and a providing love. The language of a refuge. The children of mankind find refuge in the shadow of your wings. In the ancient Near East, a common imagery of a king's protection over his people would be of an aviary image. The image of a bird with its wings spread out. And this is the idea here. We see throughout the Psalms, God is described as a refuge to his people, a place they can run for safety, where they can run for shelter, where they can, it's something they can place their confidence in in time of need. This is the, the, the root of that great hymn that we sang, I believe, maybe last week, Martin Luther, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. God is a Refuge. The book of Revelation describes the Lord Jesus Christ in this way as a shepherd who gives shelter to his people. In order that, it says, the sun may not strike them by day or the moon by night. In other words, whatever circumstance you find yourself in, day or night, Christ is our refuge. Christ is our shelter. He's a refuge to us. In the very general ways that he takes care of us from day to day. You can't live very long without finding yourself as a beneficiary of the protecting love of God. I look back on my life. I can think of multiple circumstances where if you know, a car accident had gone slightly different direction. In the birth of children if circumstances had gone in a slightly different direction, okay, all would be lost. But they weren't because God's love is a protecting love that he cares for his people. And of course, is this, if this is true in a general way, it's true even more so when it comes to our spiritual lives, when it comes to the way that Christ is our refuge spiritually. Uh, Isaiah 54 comes after what chapter in the Bible? Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 speaks of the suffering servant, of the atonement that Christ makes for us. Isaiah 54 then builds on this. And it says that the the, the heritage that God will give to his people because of the, the work of Christ on their behalf. He says, here's what it is. No weapon that's fashioned against you shall stand. You know what that means? For those who are in Christ, whatever plots, whatever charges... Whatever accusations the evil one would bring against us, they now have no standing. They have no bearing. That's why in Revelation chapter 12, the, the accuser is cast out of the heavenly throne room. Because he doesn't have anything to do, any, do there any longer. God is our refuge and strength. But God's love in Christ is not only a protecting love, it's a providing love. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from the river of your delights. The Lord provides all that we need for our daily bread. And that's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. But we find in him all provision of all needs. Remember Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. 
Therefore, what? I lack nothing. I shall not want. Because the Lord is our shepherd, we will have all we need. Paul says in Colossians 2, 9, In him, in Christ, the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. And therefore, what? We are complete in him. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, that God made Christ unto us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. You know what that's Paul's way of saying? Everything you need spiritually is yours in Christ. Through our union with Christ, because he is our shepherd and we are his sheep, because he is our husband and we are his bride, All that he has belongs to us. And we feast on the abundance of his house. His body is true food. His blood is true drink, he says in John chapter 6. We drink from the river of his delight. From his belly, John 7 says, flows rivers of living water. Well, where does this abundance come from? This leads to our third point. Not only is God's love for us in Christ an infinite love, not only is God's love for us in Christ a protecting and providing love, but God's love for us in Christ is a fontal or independent love. All right, you invite a seminary professor to preach, he's going to teach you a new word, okay? Fontal, F-O-N-T-A-L, fontility, if you want, for the... The adjectival form. Okay. Having to do with a fountain. God's love for us in Christ is like a fountain. Verse 9. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. What does that mean? God's love is, is a fontal love. A fountain-like love. An independent love. Well, best way to understand this is, is to contrast God's love with human love. Human love is always a responsive love. What do we mean by that? Okay. Our love, whether it's love of cheeseburgers, okay, whether it's the love of your spouse, okay, whether it's the love of water skiing, whatever it is, our loves are always awakened by something outside of us. Something outside of us that we deem as admirable, lovely, worthy of our devotion. And so our love is always a response to something outside of us. And that's fine. That's good. That's the way we're made. We are, as creatures, dependent. Okay? And even our love is dependent on something outside of us to elicit our love. But this is not true of God's love for us. Martin Luther, in his Heidelberg Disputation, says the love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. Think about that. The love of God does not find, but creates what's pleasing to it. It's not that God one day didn't love us, and then boom, we appeared, and maybe we did something, or we didn't do something, whatever, and then he was drawn out to start loving us. No, God's love is not like that. You know what the difference is between a well and a fountain? A well is something big that stores a lot of water. A fountain is something that produces its own water. 
And this is the point about God's love for us. Where does this abundance of God's love come from? This infinite love, this protecting love, this providing love. It doesn't come from us. It comes from God himself, from the God who is love. John says in 1 John, God is love. That's true of God before we ever existed. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is a God of love. Remember when Jesus appeared to be baptized, what does the Father say from heaven when the Spirit descends in the form of a dove? You are my beloved Son. Remember at Jesus' transfiguration where we hear the voice from heaven again, same thing, you are my beloved Son. Jesus in his high priestly prayer asks that we might see his glory when the Father raises him from the dead and exalts him to his right hand. But notice how he describes that glory. I want them to see the glory that you've given me because what? Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. God's love is a fountain-like love. Perfect, full, rich in itself. That in God's infinite mercy overflows to us. We are beneficiaries of a fontal love. Of an independent love that doesn't depend upon us. But that depends upon the eternal living and loving God. And therefore is secure. Well, this is a perspective changing love. And this is what the end of verse 9 is about. In your light do we see light. When, when we come to realize that God's love is this kind of love for us, that doesn't depend upon us, that it flows from God himself, and this changes our reality. Right? Natural religion would have us think that God's acceptance of us, that God's pleasure with us, that, God, that God, the way God treats us is based upon what? Who we are, what we do. And when we believe that, we go throughout our lives trying to kind of sucker God's favor, trying to earn his pleasure, trying to, to gain his love. But when we realize that his love for us is that of a fountain that flows freely, whose source is in itself, this changes our lives. In your light do we see light. Well, Look finally, that not only is God's love an infinite love, not only is God's love a protecting and providing love, not only is God's love a fontal love, a fountain-like love, but God's love for us in Christ is an avenging love. God's love for us in Christ is an avenging love. Look at verse 10. And 11, the psalmist, having reflected upon the wicked, being aware of the fear that the wicked person's opposition to his own life brings, turns to contemplate the love of God in its infinite depth, in its expansive protection and provision, in its fontility. Sorry, I won't say it again. And in light of the new perspective that he gains on the enemy... On the wicked, he prays, Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. In other words, those who know you, those who belong to you, those who have been justified by faith, the upright in heart, 
Continue your steadfast love to those who know you. And let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. What's happened? Okay. Again, it's not that the, the, the psalmist has kind of ignored the wicked. It's not that he's trying to pretend the wicked doesn't exist. But he, now he sees the wicked in a different light. If this is true of God, and if this is true of God's love for his people, then what should he do? Give it over to the Lord. <laughs> if the God who created heaven and earth, the seas and all their depths, who rules all things by his powerful word, who gave his own son to redeem us that we might belong to him, who assures us by his spirit that one day we will inherit heaven and earth and God himself. If that's our God and that God loves us, then where, where is the wicked? What can the wicked accomplish? And so he says, continue your steadfast love for me. Do not let him bring his hand against me. Don't let the foot of arrogance come upon me. And note how the prayer is answered. Verse 12. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. You remember we saw in the first few verses the totality of agency. The totality of the wicked person's capacities for action were devoted to the destruction of the child of God. His heart, his eyes, his feet, his hands. But now what has happened? There is utter loss of agency. Utter incapacitation for action. He lies fallen, unable to rise. Oh yes, he plotted great things on his bed. Oh yes, he concocted great things in his heart. But now he has lost even his ability to act. Why? Because the steadfast love of God for his people is an avenging love. Let me tell you something. God's love is not nice. How many non-Southerners do we have in here? You were not raised in the South, born in the South. You've, you've been transplanted. Okay, so tell me if I'm wrong. Whenever I'm a Southerner, okay, so I had to learn this from someone else. I had to learn this from a foreigner. Um, people who are not raised in the South will, will, will often describe their first time in the South, their first time experience in the South, coming to church or something like that. Not this church, of course. They'll meet someone and say, oh, so nice to meet you. We're going to have to have you over. We're going we're gonna to take you out to lunch. We're going to do this or that. You know, and, and these poor, unsuspecting non-Southerners believe it. Oh, that's great. We met the nicest people today. They're going to invite us over to their house, right? And then what happens? Phone never rings. Email never comes. Whatever. What is it? Well, that's just southern niceness. We say nice things, but but it's kind of a it's a shallow, hollow, sometimes empty kindness. Again, that's not always true. Southern people are the best, really, but but you know what I'm talking about. And sometimes that's how we think of God's love, right? It's, just, it's, it's, it's a kind of panty-waisted, superficial, lactose-intolerant love, okay? But, but this is not God's love. 
God's love for his people is a jealous, zealous, avenging love. God's love does not ignore injustice. And neither should ours. Sometimes when we're mistreated, we think, oh, what I need to do is just forget about it. What I need, oh, it's, it's not a big deal. We, we think we need to just be nice. Like that's what God says when he says love your enemies. No. The reason we don't retaliate is because the Lord has taught us vengeance is mine. I will repay. Listen to what the Heidelberg Catechism says, speaking of the comfort of Christ returning to judge the living and the dead. How does Christ return? This is question 52. How does Christ return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? How does Christ's judgment comfort you? I mean, that's a little strange to our ears. Answer. In all my afflictions and persecution, I may await with head held high the very judge from heaven who has already submitted himself to the judgment of God for me and has removed all the curse from me. He will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation. But he will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and glory of heaven. I know what you're thinking. Well, Scott, that's a hybrid catechism. I mean, I know we recite it, but, but is that biblical? Look at Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul says, God considers it just to do what? To repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. And when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. Those who do not know God. The exact same language of Psalm 36. And those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is those who have not been justified by faith. The upright in heart. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord. And from the glory of his might. You see one of the things that enables us to, to, to endure the opposition of our enemies in this world. is not that we ignore justice but that we commit justice to the one who loves us. And this is what the psalmist does. And the result is he, he sees, as it were, ahead of time. There the evil doer lies fallen. He is unable to rise. Now, here's the thing about this. This is, this is maybe uncomfortable to hear. God's love is an avenging love. But it should be a very comforting thing to hear. And, 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 and the, the truth of this teaching of Scripture doesn't just lead, lead us to, to kind of refuse to, to take things, take matters in our own hand. It doesn't just lead us to, to refuse to retaliate against our enemies. But when we commit vengeance to the Lord, when we know that His love for us is not just an infinite protecting, providing, and fountain-like love, but it's also an avenging love. When we receive this in our hearts, you know what we're able to do to our enemies? We're able to give them water when they're thirsty. We're able to pray for those who despitefully use us and persecute us. We're able to share the gospel with them and to warn them 
to flee the wrath to come. To, to, to come to Christ. To come to feast on the abundance of his house. To drink from the river of his delight. Well, let me ask you this morning. Do you have fears? What do you fear? Who do you fear? We all do. You can't live very long in this world without having fears. Without facing the reality of an enemy and their opposition. Well, this morning God in his word would direct us to that great counterbalancing jewel. To to weigh on the scale of our heart. That God's love for us is an infinite and immeasurable love. It's a protecting and providing love. It's a fountain-like love. And yes, it's an avenging love. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are so good to us. That you reveal yourself to us in the fullness of your steadfast love. We pray that by faith we may receive it and that we may live our lives in times of peace, in times of conflict, with the knowledge of your love for us in Christ, whose breadth and length and height and depth are past finding out. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.